0: From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 8th. Imagine you're on a boat. It's not just any boat. You're a scientist on a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration boat, committed to being in the middle of the ocean for an entire month doing research. But instead of collecting data, you've mostly been confined to your own quarters, debilitated. With illness
1: it's not that i didn't know that i got seasick but it was such a large ship mm-hmm. that i did not expect this to be a thing but i am not exaggerating i threw up every 30 minutes for days and uh, i used one of those patches kind of belatedly and it made me go blind which is a rare side effect of those patches
0: this is the lived experience of moab local amanda height a former scientist now turned science journalist She's a contributor to a new collection of personal essays called Uncharted, how scientists navigate their own health, research, and experiences of bias. In it, people from a variety of STEM fields write about their experiences of chronic illness or disability. Through these first-person stories, readers hear about isolation and ableism in academia. There are challenges and sorrow in their experiences, but also humor and wonder. Today on the news, we speak with Haidt about this work. She begins with the experience that led her to contribute in the first place.
1: I have a very solid memory of being a, I don't remember what year grad student I was, but it was early on in my, my master's degree in marine science. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in the student offices. It was dark. I was sitting alone at my desk, and I got an email from the editors. Um, back then the project was, was titled Seasick, um, which it's obviously since changed, but they were soliciting contributions for, for this collection. and I do and did and do get very seasick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's what my contribution is about, um, which is not a chronic illness or a disability, but it is debilitating mm-hmm. um, in certain settings.
0: Yeah. And you studied marine biology? I did yeah. So that seasickness is very relevant to your studies.
1: Yeah so my thesis actually ended up not requiring um boats but you know a lot of the work that I did helping friends with their theses or with projects going on in my lab did involve boats. I um I'm a scientific scuba diver. I taught scuba diving in Thailand for a long time and um yeah the what my essay is about is I actually went to sea on a NOAA cruise for 30 days so we did not come back to land for a month and uh As you will find, I had a a really rough time with that.
0: Let's get into it. What can you highlight for us about this contribution in this book?
1: Yeah, so... Basically, what had happened is, you know, my, my essay kind of opens with talking about how much prep goes into putting on and, or, con- you know, participating in an expedition like this where you're you're really self-sufficient. I was the only person from my lab, you know, kind of there. Other people had, you know, multiple people on their teams. Um, and one thing that I did not anticipate uh, was how my seat sickness was going to get me. So it was really just like this intense experience. Um, and it ended up, I ended up getting better over time, and, mm-hmm. and it was not a problem, but kind of you know how it feels to be somewhat isolated when you're not around people that you know when you're feeling like you have a lot on your shoulders you want to kind of do a good job Um, Mm. so that was my my contribution I used a lot of synonyms for the word vomit I really pulled out the old thesaurus on that one um and I actually drafted it when I was house sitting for a friend in Spanish Valley at his house I used it as a writing retreat
0: you know you use the word isolation um this is something that I've noticed with people who are writing about this book folks who are experiencing chronic illness or disabilities or in your case you know almost like temporary illness depending on the setting um can feel very isolated.
1: Yeah that is definitely I would say like a big through line of of a lot of the underlying essays is you know how the experience of going through academia with um, a chronic illness or a disability especially when it's not a visible one um can yeah be really isolating. There's one essay that I really enjoyed which was essentially a collection of anecdotes from a, a single scientist who um you know has auditory kind of mm-hmm. impairment and um, has to kind of read lips, has to sit at the front, um, and this, this kind of contrast of going to conferences where she was not accommodated in any way Mm -hmm. versus going out into the field working in small groups with people who, um, took the time to kind of work with her and, like, Mm -hmm. make her feel supported.
0: Yeah, one contributor in the collection estimates that although people with disabilities represent some 20% of the world's population, they are highly underrepresented in STEM, um, so that probably can contributes to ableism when the systems aren't in place and people don't think of disabled folks first.
1: There was another essay that basically talks about this idea of you know in academia we're expected to kind of sacrifice and suffer for the science in many ways Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. you know to always put Either the science or the team ahead of kind of your own needs. And that's very antithetical to self prioritizing and self care and setting boundaries. And so mm-hmm. essentially, I think this idea that st- you know, disability is, is underrepresented in STEM is a consequence of STEM in academia being a somewhat hostile place, Um, Mm. or it can be, you know, without Mm. the proper support in place.
0: That's so interesting. So, you know, that's not just affecting, you know, marginalized scientists, but it's affecting everybody. Um, And this is almost like calling that out and um, shining another light on it. Mm-hmm, um, do you think that's applicable to other fields in our area as well? Yeah,
1: so you know, one reason that I thought Uncharted would kind of have a ready audience in Moab, even though, um, you know, it's it's kind of specifically about scientists, and a lot of the stories are kind of marine biology themed, not all of them. There's actually one about Moab, but uh, you know, we have a, a pretty prolific, not just scientific community here, but guiding community here, and I think that I would say most of the points that are made about kind of, you know, doing field work Mm -hmm. while kind of taking disability or chronic illness into account are equally true of something like guiding, um, you know, kind of, having responsibility, being isolated, you know, kind of not having a routine schedule that allows you to manage symptoms. I think those are all kind of relevant too.
0: you mentioned that part of the book is also how able-bodied people can support their colleagues with disabilities or chronic illnesses. Anything that you wanna highlight from the book in that regard?
1: I think the takeaway is, you know, able-bodied people can be really solid advocates um, in requesting and normalizing accommodations for people, um, you know, which, normalizing is an interesting word because I think accommodations are normal and like Mm -hmm. to perceive them as other is somewhat you know troubling and so I think Mm -hmm. just kind of asking people what they need, you know, being a voice so that people don't necessarily have to always be advocating for themselves, which I imagine is tiring. So just kind of stepping up and and lending support I think is the idea.
0: You know, what I know of the disability rights movement in particular, one thing that has always struck me is that advocates um, often say, you know, we will all experience illness, we will all experience disability, whether that's temporary or long term, if we are lucky enough to live long enough. I appreciate you saying that able-bodied people um definitely have space to advocate for those accommodations for us all because we all might need them
1: yeah and another thing i guess i haven't really mentioned yet is um you know mental illness is kind of included Mm -hmm. under under this umbrella and like i don't i think we probably all know someone if not ourselves who you know suffers from anxiety Mm -hmm. or depression um you know things like that and so you know i think removing stigma by being more open and making people feel comfortable sharing their experiences because these things are not isolated and they're not rare Mm -hmm. is very important also and I think you know that's kind of what the purpose of this book is right is this is a resource that all of the contributors probably wish they had when they were starting out you know Mm -hmm. is just seeing themselves reflected in other people in the same space that they are you know and and the lack of that sometimes means that people get pushed out which is Mm -hmm. you know really unfortunate
0: you are a contributor we talked about your contribution and you also are a reader of the book so are there any other stories that you particularly found arresting or fascinating or something that surprised you
1: yeah one thing i really appreciate about the book is the diversity of kind of life experience that they got out of contributors, you know, so there are kind of early career researchers, Mm -hmm. there are late career researchers, you know, so people who were doing science back in the 1950s and have been doing it for 70 years, I thought that part was really cool. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want every story to be doom and gloom, you know, we want to acknowledge that there's challenge, we want to think about how we can do better, Mm -hmm. but you know, this book also does a good job of really sharing how the experience of kind of navigating a a disability or chronic illness can bring a fresh perspective to STEM and so for example there was a story about a woman that has ADHD and she's writing a letter to her niece who's 12 who also has ADHD mm-hmm. and she's just talking about how her perception of the world is mm-hmm. is unique and beautiful and like she is able to kind of focus on detail that most people would miss and i don't know i thought that one was really beautiful
0: there are stories in here that are devastating there are stories in here that are humorous and there are stories in here that are like full of wonder
1: yeah they're celebratory (laughs) in many ways not all of them but you know like no one group is a monolith and there's there's Mm -hmm. no purpose in trying to kind of distill Mm -hmm. these very complex experiences into one thing sure um and so i think highlighting The diversity of perspective is also important.
0: You know, how did it feel for you to also hear other people's stories and experiences?
1: Yeah, it was interesting because this was my first time writing a first-person essay. You Mm -hmm. know, my job as a journalist literally requires me to take my voice out of everything Mm -hmm. that I'm writing to a large Mm -hmm. extent. And so when I first wrote it, I was really... um, self-conscious about it. I didn't like it very much. And so, I actually didn't read mine until the end and I like it more than I remember <laughs> liking it. But yeah, I mean it's very it's very humbling, you know, I feel like my experience is very situational and I can take myself out of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was a time when they had kind of shifted the direction where I thought that maybe my contribution wasn't really relevant mm-hmm. anymore. Um and the editors Skylar and Gabby really kind of pushed me to to keep with it. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah it's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster you know it's mm-hmm. it's a very emotional book in many ways but i really enjoy that and i really appreciate that how vulnerable people were willing to be for it you know in really mm-hmm. serious and profound ways
0: what are you you know hoping that this throwing this this book as a little like ripple in a lake <laughs> what are you hoping for that people take away from it
1: a big part of my work is covering you know what we call careers stories which is basically more than the science what it means to be a scientist in Mm -hmm. academia so a lot of the things that I write are basically about experiences of inequity in Mm -hmm. academia and that can be a challenging beat because it feels like it it doesn't stop and so I think you know what I would like to see come out of this is is a greater awareness of the realities beyond Mm. our own realities in academia and how we can kind of promote empathy for other people. And I think we put a lot of impetus on people to self-advocate, but, you know, I think there's a long way we could go towards you know, making people feel comfortable self-advocating. You know, mm-hmm. like I think sometimes just asking, you know, can be difficult because one, you're having to acknowledge something that's very personal. You know, mm-hmm. like you might have a lot of stigma and shame around that, which the book talks about. Um, and so just kind of being proactive about saying like, what do you need to mm-hmm. be successful? What do you need to feel supported? And that's that's true for
0: anyone. Like we should mm-hmm. be asking everybody that. That's Moab-based journalist Amanda Haidt. Her work has appeared in places like Nature, Science, and on KZMU via KUER. She's among dozens of personal essayists contributing to a new book titled Uncharted, how scientists navigate their own health, research, and experiences of bias. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Ten years ago, Wildlife biologists introduced a herd of mountain goats in the LaSalle Mountains, and they've been causing controversies ever since. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent speaks with Emily Arntzen about what's in store for the herd. Uh,
2: There are about 100
0: mountain goats up
2: there. There were 35 uh, deposited by the state, Um, in 2013 and 2014. And the goats have been the subject of controversy and litigation, actually, uh, essentially since they were put here. They are, you know, many say non-native to the area. Um, The state has said that there were reports of mountain goats in Utah up up through like 100 years ago, and that's why they were able to be transplanted there. But many people disagree with that and say that they're not native to the area and that they are uh, damaging alpine vegetation. And that was the subject of a lawsuit filed just a few years ago by two environmental groups against the U.S. Forest. Service saying that the Forest Service uh, should remove the goats um, from the Forest Service land that the goats have now um, gone into because they were first put into state land.
3: Okay. So if mountain goats aren't supposed to live in the LaSalle Mountains, what kinds of mountains are they supposed to live in?
2: They've been... Uh, I mean, they are in mountain ranges, I think, throughout the Western United States. But I know that in Utah, all of the current populations were actually put there specifically, starting in 1967 uh, with a mountain range.
3: Why were they put there?
2: Different folks from the state provide kind of different reasons for it. one reason they've provided is that they are a benefit to recreationists and visitors and folks who want to see and hunt the goats. The state does uh, provide hunting permits for those who want to hunt mountain goats in Utah. Um, A biologist at the state also told me that bighorn sheep were essentially killed off um, due to a disease, I think, spread from domestic sheep or shared with domestic sheep. Uh, And mountain goats kind of fulfill the same ecological niche as that former bighorn sheep population, but without the same risk of, like, spreading disease, to or getting disease from domestic sheep. So there were ecological reasons uh, provided as well.
3: So I've heard that they are... They're bad for pika uh, habitats, is that correct?
2: So there's actually ongoing research about their interaction, so we're not sure about that, at least up in the La Salles. Uh, But there have been reports that they are kicking up uh, native and fragile alpine vegetation, including species that aren't found anywhere else in the world, such as the La Salle daisy. Uh, So that was the subject of the... Uh, litigation from the Utah Native Plant Society and the Grand Canyon Trust. And that lawsuit was actually dismissed by a judge in 2019 who basically said, you know, the Forest Service, service hasn't actually made a permanent decision about what to do with the goats. So it's too early for this lawsuit even to happen, which is really interesting because um, in that ruling from the judge, he cited this monitoring program that the Forest Service and the DWR were just about to kick off together, saying, like, you know, that's going to help contribute to this permanent management decision that could you know, uh, then if you wanted to, you could file a lawsuit and that would be an appropriate time to do it. But actually, since 2019, that joint research effort between the state and the federal agencies broke down. Uh, They couldn't agree on the analysis of the data they'd collected.
3: So what's the status moving forward? What's going to happen to the mountain goats?
2: Yeah, right now, they are still up there. They're at about half of the herd that half the size of the herd that the UDWR says that they want. Eventually, um, in the meantime, you know, the Forest Service did take that data and some analysis that the state contributed to and, and formed their own report that's online. And the DWR has launched their own study uh, with a researcher from Brigham Young University um, studying this kind of the same things, alpine vegetation, goat wallows, to see if they come up with is to see what answers they come up with about goat impacts on alpine vegetation. And results from that won't be out until I think at least 2025, probably later. So it'll be interesting to see what that says, and to see if that does contribute to an eventual management decision, because the Forest Service kind of hasn't said one way or another when they might, um, you know, come out with a decision about what to do or not to do about the mountain goats. So mm. I think limbo is kind of the best word to describe their situation now.
3: Okay. I have never seen one of these up in the LaSalle's. Have you?
2: I have not, but I have, I know friends who have, I've heard going early in the morning or late at night or late in the evening is good. And they are tend to be very high up, I think, especially in the summer, like eleven, twelve thousand 12,000
3: feet. Okay. Uh, what else happened this week?
2: Yeah, we uh, checked in with Wabi Sabi, uh, the thrift store and nonprofit supporter that is going to be kicked out of its current digs on 100 South in just about a year and a half. Um, as we reported in March, their property did go up for sale. They'd had a um, the property was owned by a landholder up in Salt Lake City who'd been very generous with the thrift store up until that point, but wanted to sell the property, and someone immediately snapped it up. So they still have a two; they had a two-year lease from that point of sale, which means they'll get to stay until March 2025. Um, but in the meantime, Wabi Sabi is doing everything it can, according to Executive Director Leah Bear, to uh, start to raise money to buy a new property and maybe construct a new building if they need it.
3: Okay. Do you know who the new owner of that building is?
0: Yes, it's an LLC owned by a local real estate agent. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at MoabTimes.com. Last year, the Grand County Sheriff's 911 line received over 20,000 calls. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News has been digging into the specifics of what Grand County residents are calling about. She speaks with Emily Arntzen about the larger story this data tells about emergencies in Moab.
4: The beginning of this story kind of starts with Jameson Wiggins, who is currently the Grand County Sheriff, and he started in January. And one of his main goals was to be more transparent with the community about um, what the Sheriff's Office is up to. So you've probably noticed if you follow them on Facebook that at the end of every month they summarize the number of calls they receive through dispatch, um, emergency calls, traffic stops, arrests, and papers served, and also um, SAR incidents or search and rescue incidents. Um, so I have been looking at this data for you know, nine months now, and um, what they don't say is like what people are calling dispatch about. And so that's kind of what I wanted to look into. So I worked with the sheriff's office, um, public information officer to Grima request this document with the, they call it computer aided dispatch calls. Um, and they were all organized by nature of call. And I got all of those calls for 2022. So last year dispatch received over 20,000 calls. Um, so is
3: that a lot of calls for a place like Moab or is that normal?
4: Yeah, it's a lot of calls. And so that's like around 2000 calls a month. Um, and the majority of those calls for like usually come through in tourist season so for this year for example they've already gotten 19,000 and 8,000 of those came through in April and May. So when I started this I was kind of wondering if they even kept track of what people are calling about because it's like so many calls per day and I feel like it would be understandable if they really don't but they do keep really good data about it they organize every single call into this like incident category and they have over 200 different categories of incidents um those range from life-threatening like last year dispatch received 11 calls about cardiac arrest to super accidental, like 800 calls were classified as 911 abandoned or accidental. Um, sheriff deputies aren't responding to every call, like a lot of them are rerouted to offices like the BLM or the National Park Service. But yeah, a lot of the time it is incidents where deputies have to respond. And so I kind of started like grouping everything together so we could make more sense of it. And I found that almost 30% of calls related to traffic issues. um, That's not including VIN inspections, which accounted for around 6% of calls last year. Um, Traffic issues were like traffic stops or accidents or road damage. And then around 10% of calls were medical issues, like both emergency and non-emergency, like chest pain and allergies and convulsions. Um, 9% were accidental calls. 8% were related to various other patrols, like bike patrol or BLM or school patrol. And then it kind of started tapering off. So disturbances like suspicious persons and noise complaints were around 4%. Minor crimes and harassment were around 3% each. And then the Sheriff's Department also responds to building and fire alarms, which were 1.5% of total. Um, And then I kind of started figuring out, like, what we're going to work on in the future. And so this is part of an ongoing series. Um, I think something that's really interesting is that non-animal abuse, like calls about child, elder, and domestic abuse, accounted for less than 1% of calls. There were 156 total last year. But I think that number is pretty misleading because people in abusive situations are more likely to call violence-specific resources or look to other resources um, in the community. And a 2019 report from the US Department of Justice estimated that under half of all violence victims report their situation to the police. Um, and also this data has a couple of repeats and missing areas, like in 2022 calls for impaired persons was listed twice, once under impaired slash intoxicated persons and once for intoxicated persons by itself. And then there were a couple of random categories like damage to jail had two calls, um, and informational CAD to CAD or CAD, um, was two calls. And then they group things together, too, like shooting and gunshot sounds heard are in the same category, even though they feel like very different things. Um, And then there's also a separate category from person with a gun. And then there were a bunch of different categories for people calling about suspicious people. There was prowler for calls, suspicious person, which was 446 calls, and threatening, just that word. Um, was 70 calls. And those were all separated out. So it was really interesting. And I kind of just wanted to do this as an introduction to this data that we'll be working Mm -hmm. with in the future. Yeah. Um, Okay. So
3: when you're describing those numbers, mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, so 30% were traffic calls. And then pretty much everything else was like 10% or less. Right. And so every, uh, the whole rest of the total was made up of just like odds and ends, random yeah okay
4: yeah it was really surprising to me how mm. many odds and ends there were um yeah and I also there were a lot of calls relating to issues I didn't even know the sheriff's department or a dispatch could cover like 35 calls last year were for vacation house checks which is literally what? just people calling in like asking the sheriff's department to go check on guys
3: house. we I are know. paying for the police to go check on other people's vacation homes yes
4: 17 were for funeral escorts Um, 30 calls were just people reporting scams. Mm. Um, Yeah, so there are a lot of teeny tiny little random odds and ends like that. There was one call for an aircraft crash, um, a bunch of calls for, like, court situations, um, six calls for evictions, 13 calls for fireworks. And there were also some um, kind of heartbreaking calls. Like, there was one call for miscarriage. Um, five calls for odor investigations. Like, they have all of these categories um, that really I also wanted to look into and am going to in the future, like, how they categorize these things and who um, is behind that. Like, for this story, I was really just kind of focusing on the data by itself and then we'll look more into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Does the data say how many of the calls received were responded to by police
4: yeah so this year the police uh, or the sheriff's office has been keeping track of that Um, and there is like a pretty big difference in that And so this year, they've gotten 19,000 or so calls, and around half of those are responded to by deputies. But a big, um, I was talking to Al Simbalouk, who is the PIO at the sheriff's office, and he was saying the calls that the deputies aren't responding to are likely to be accidental calls or um, calls that are routed to other agencies.
3: Like the hospital or what would another agency be?
4: Yeah, like the hospital or um, something that's going on in one of the parks or going on on BLM land. And also, this is the county sheriff, and so they work really closely with the city police, too. So some calls are rerouted to the city police.
3: Mm-hmm. So what's the biggest story here, do you think, with, with what you're seeing in the data
4: yeah, I think it's really interesting kind of um, I think what we can do as local reporters is take things that people are talking about in the community in general and then give some um, like factual basis to it. And so when we talk about issues in this community, we talk about housing a lot um, and we also talk about domestic violence. And so I think it's really interesting to look into those two things Um in terms of like what people are calling the police about and i think it adds a lot of context to the conversation around um like who in our community is responsible for certain things Mm -hmm. um like yeah it's bizarre that 35 calls were for vacation house checks and why would that fall on the sheriff's office and then also you know who can be responsible for taking care of people who are in abusive situations and how do those people find help if it's not going through nine one one?
3: mm Is there anything else you want to tell us about that?
4: Yeah. So we'll have like a full spreadsheet of the data online at um, our website.
3: Great. What's next in the series? Are you going to do a specific topic?
4: Yeah, I think I'm going to start looking into um, especially domestic violence and also Um, I think it'd be interesting to chat with the sheriff's department about what they're going to do with VIN inspections. They've said in the past that that's kind of annoying for them to have to do. And last year, you know, they had to do VIN inspections and that's for like anyone who's registering a new car, um, or a car in the county. And that was like 1100 calls. And so more than a thousand times officers had to go just look at someone's car and sign off on it. Um, And so there are a lot of cases. Where the Sheriff's Office is trying to, like, figure out a better process for a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Okay, super interesting.
4: Yeah. Festival of Science
3: <laughs> is coming up. You want to talk about that?
4: Yeah, so the Moab Festival of Science is returning September 13th to the 17th. Um, this is always just, like, a really cute and fun event. And um, this year, they're going to focus on uh, pinion juniper, aspen, and pine forests um so that'll be the keynote and I talked to um Sasha Reed who helps organize the festival and was one of the people who helped start it seven years ago um and she said they really wanted to focus on um talking about forests because across the west there have been these cases of pinion juniper pine mortality and so people are starting to wonder, you know, like how is climate change and how is fire especially impacting these ecosystems that we're so used to seeing? Cool. Yeah. So that'll be really cool. And that's the keynote. And then they have a ton of other events going on. So, like, this is a really good chance to learn a lot about science. And I think. The community, this community like loves science and we care very deeply about it. So there will be a like movie night with this documentary TV series that was filmed partially in Moab. Um, and this episode stars Dr. Tim Graham, who is oh. super well known around town. So it'll be really fun to see him on the screen um, and also see how these filmmakers interpret Moab and interpret sandstone. Um, And then there are a bunch of opportunities to go on outdoor hikes and tours and listen to talks. And there will also be like the classic and ever-popular geology hikes and lichens hikes, so people can go on those.
3: People love the lichen hikes. Yeah, the lichen
4: hikes are so popular. Um, yeah, and I talked to Erica Geiger, too, who is a festival organizer, and she said they always try to have a line of events that highlight a lot of different fields of science, and she said it's just, like, a really cool opportunity to be able to bring in scientists here who people in Moab may not even know are a resource.
3: Cool. Yeah. Looking forward to that.
4: Yeah, that'll be fun.
3: Do, do people need to sign up for anything?
4: Yes, people do need to register for some events, um, and you can do that on their website, which is
0: moab-scifest.org. Allison Hartford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.